Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we've got Danny and Victoria presenting. Hello. And Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas. We have a bumper festive podcast lined up for you. So big that we've had to split it into two parts. We have something for everyone in the family. The wee toddler to the moody teenager. The frantic parents to the snoozing grandparents. And not forgetting the other relatives knocking back the brandy. So why not gather everyone round and take a break listening to the interviews, extracts and readings we have in store. So first up, something for the children with an extract from The Third Wheel, the latest book in the hugely popular series Diary of a Wimpy Kid by Jeff Kiddy. Next, Amanda Brookfield empathises with all the parents rushing around doing last-minute shopping for presents and the Christmas lunch in one of her short stories. That has been a nightmare for me so far, and I'm, I'm still at it. How about you? I'm all done. I just need to wrap, and then I'm ready to go, go, go. Oh, nobody needs to hear that. <laughs> right, moving on. <laughs> we have an informative piece for the historians in the family on Shakespeare's London by Neil McGregor, author of Shakespeare's Restless World. Then we move on to an interview with 2012's busiest woman, Claire Boulding, talking about her autobiography, My Animals and Other Family. And finally, we have a hilarious clip for everyone from Dawn French's latest novel, Oh Dear Sylvia. So here's an extract from The Third Wheel by Jeff Kinney, the seventh book in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. January. Sunday. I wish I'd started keeping a journal a lot earlier on because whoever ends up writing my biography is going to have a lot of questions about my life and the years leading up to middle school. Luckily, I remember just about everything that's happened to me since I was born. In fact, I can even remember stuff that happened to me before I was born. Back in those days, it was just me swimming around in the dark, doing backflips and taking naps whenever I wanted. Then, one day when I was in the middle of a really good nap, I got woken up by these strange noises coming from the outside. At the time, I didn't know what the heck I was hearing, but later on, I found out it was Mom piping in music through these speakers she put on her belly. I guess Mom thought if she played classical music for me every day before I was born, it would turn me into some kind of genius. Those speakers came with a microphone, and when Mom wasn't playing music, she was telling me everything that was going on in her life. And when Dad came home from work, Mom would have him give me a blow-by-blow of his day. But that wasn't the end of it. Every night, Mom would read to me for a half hour before she went to bed. The problem is, my sleep schedule didn't line up with Mom's. So when she was sleeping, I'd be wide awake. I actually wish I'd paid more attention when Mom was reading to me, though. Last week in school, we had a pop quiz on a book, and I hadn't read it yet. I was pretty sure Mom read that one to me before I was born, but I couldn't remember any of the details. I guess the week Mom was reading that book, I was busy doing something else. The crazy thing is, Mom didn't need to use the microphone for me to hear her. I mean, I was inside of her, so I could hear every word she said, whether I wanted to or not. I could also hear just about everything that was happening on the outside. So when Mom and Dad got all mushy, I had to listen to that, too. I've never really felt comfortable when people are acting affectionate around me, especially when it's my parents. I tried to get them to stop, but 
they never got the message. In fact, everything I tried just seemed to make things worse. After a few months of living like this, I had to get out of there, and that's why I was born three weeks early. But after being hit by the cold air and the blinding lights of the delivery room, I wish I'd just stayed put. By the time I came into the world, I was totally sleep-deprived and in a really lousy mood. So if you ever see a picture of a newborn, now you know why they always look ticked off. In fact, I still haven't caught up on the sleep I missed, and believe me, I've been trying. Ever since I was born, I've tried to recreate the feeling I had way back when I was floating around in the dark, happy as could be. But when you're living in a house with four other people, some fool is always going to come along and ruin things for you. I met my older brother Roderick a few days after I was born. Up to that point, I thought I was an only child, so I was pretty disappointed to find out I wasn't. My family was living in a really small apartment back then, and I had to share a room with Roderick. He got the crib, so for the first few months of my life, I had to sleep in the top dresser drawer, which I'm pretty sure isn't even legal. Eventually, Dad moved his work stuff out of the room he was using as an office and made it into a nursery. I got Roderick's old crib, and he got a new bed. Almost everything I had back in those days was a hand-me-down from Roderick. By the time something came to me, it was either worn out or covered in slobber. Even my pacifier was a hand-me-down from Roderick. I don't think he was ready to give it up, though, which might explain why he's never really liked me. It was just the four of us for a long time, and then one day, Mom told me she was going to have another baby. I was glad she gave me the heads up so I could be ready. When my little brother Manny came along, everybody thought he was so cute. But what they don't tell you about babies is that after they're born, they have this black stub on their belly button where the umbilical cord was tied off. Eventually, the stub dries up and falls off, and the baby has a regular-looking belly button. The thing is, nobody ever found Manny's stub. And to this day, I'm still paranoid it's going to show up somewhere. That was an extract from The Third Wheel by Jeff Kinney, which is out now. Next, a Christmas story by Amanda Brookfield, who's the author of The Love Child. My name's Amanda Brookfield, author of The Love Child, and this is how I beat the winter blues and get myself safely and happily through to January. The truth is, I'm not one of those people who looks forward to Christmas. Not one of those, in other words, who starts spraying gold paint on Pussy Willow for festive flower displays or doing spreadsheets of her Christmas cards complete with sticky labels that will magically emerge from her printer. I'm not very technologically minded, but that's not the reason. The reason is, there's something about the expectation of Christmas, all those instructions that start in the supermarket aisles in September, sometimes even in August, for us to devise new ways of stuffing a turkey, that makes me want to do the opposite. I hate to be told what to do by anyone, even those helpful pop-ups on Amazon telling me which purchases I would like on the basis of the purchases I've already made get me hot under the collar. I prefer to stumble upon books or films that I love or to feel that I've discovered them for myself through happenstance and the serendipity of conversations with friends or strangers or through my eye being caught in a magazine or a newspaper. I enjoy the randomness of all that, the possibility of spontaneity. 
So being told to enjoy and prepare for Christmas is liable to turn me the other way, into a snarling Scrooge of a creature, but trying my best to keep it hidden because I'm a mum and mums do Christmas, and because deep down I don't really want to be so mean-hearted. But then what happens every time is that Christmas wins me round. Every single time. It sucks me in. I start to play the game. I start to get excited. By Christmas Eve, I'm up to my neck in festive cheer. And the ways it wins me round go like this. First, there's buying presents. I love buying presents. If I'm honest, part of it has to be the shopaholic in me. December is the one time when it feels virtuous rather than sinful to be staggering up and down Oxford Street, laden with shopping bags and credit cards teetering at their limits. The year before last, I got tennis elbow from Christmas shopping, which is the absolute truth and might even sound funny unless you're a tennis elbow sufferer yourself, in which case you'll know that it hurts like hell and takes months to go away. Even typing hurt, which, being a novelist, proved something of a nuisance. So last year I was more careful. I carried bags over my shoulder and made frequent trips to the car to load up the boot. I always begin with the plan of buying strictly one present each. I have a large extended family with lots of now quite grown-up nephews and nieces, not to mention my own sons who are both in their 20s. But the plan never works, resulting in me holed up in my study on Christmas Eve, surrounded by extra gifts and tags and trying to decide how to allocate them. I like doing that too. The second thing that wins me round is carols. Oh my word, I love carols. With singing as my number one hobby, I sing in a rock choir as well as a couple of classical ones, I guess this isn't too surprising. What does surprise me, however, is how fresh the old favourites feel every time. Away in a manger, Hart Herald, O little town of Bethlehem in the bleak midwinter. I could go on and on. It's like meeting old friends, but really good old friends, who manage, in spite of our brief, limited acquaintance, to give me more and more pleasure as the years go by. And because of the singing thing, I make sure each December that I go to several carol concerts. This year, I have three lined up. One in St Paul's Cathedral, one in the chapel of the Royal Hospital Chelsea and one in Southwark Cathedral. It's like looking ahead to the most delicious indulgent three-course feast. The beauty of the venues, the music, the atmosphere. I know I'll swoon at each one, basically falling in love with the Christmas season all over again. And then there's the rather less sublime carol singing I shall be doing myself down at my local pub, the Alain Head, rattling a charity box, and then in St Mary's Fittleworth on Christmas morning, where me and my extended family pack out a good four of the little pews between us. But the most fabulous thing for me about mid-December onwards is it becomes impossible to do any work. I fight it as long as I can, but as soon as I let the card writing and present buying and food planning into my head, there's just no way I can focus on anything else. My notebooks, printed versions of my new novel in progress, get buried under wrapping paper and sellotape and Christmas labels and lists of things still to do. And once I give in to all of that, it feels brilliant. Because as a writer, one lives with the constant guilt of not working. At least I do. True switching off is hard to manage. But at Christmas, it really happens. It's like an avalanche. Resistance is useless. By the time the new year is done with... I look back and realise I've had the best and longest holiday of my year. That was Amanda Brookfield falling in love with the festive season all over again. Her newest book, The Love Child, will be out in January. Now let's go back in history to Shakespeare's London with Neil McGregor. You're in the theatre and one of the things you're doing, the question is, you're eating. 
and what are you eating when you first hear to be or not to be. Um, so in the chapter recording Snacking Through Shakespeare, uh, we look at that because you're eating the whole time. And if you're in the pit, you are eating uh, fruit, but above all you're eating uh, shellfish, oysters, huge numbers of them discovered in the excavation of the Museum of London in the 1590s. Uh, and we know that constantly, if you're standing in that pit at the bottom of the stage, everybody around you is eating and drinking. And the women, uh, the fragments of little bottles that they brought to pee in, uh, the men just peed. So it's quite, a, quite an experience being in the pit, and it's quite noisy. If you're grand and upstairs, then this is what you've heard. This was found in these excavations. And this is the smartest, modern, chicest, ponciest bit of eating equipment in London of the 1590s. It's an Italian-style fork. And only somebody uh, very rich, very show-off, would have had it. And if you're in those galleries upstairs, then you, as in Glyndebourne, you take your hamper and you take your cutlery. And this is what you use to eat sweetmeats, kissing comforts. Um, uh, remember, Falstaff has kissing comforts where he embarks on Mistress Ford to make his breath sweet. And this is what you would prod your sweetmeats with. It must have dropped through the floor of the box. And he must have been very, very angry indeed when he lost it. And what we're trying to do is this kind of thing. What's the physical experience of being in that theatre? And what's the mental experience? You've walked, you're in Southwark. You go to Southwark because that's where you go for entertainment, for bear baiting, cockfighting, brothels, taverns, and the theatre. And they're all together. It's a night out. And, uh, or a day out, it starts in the afternoon. And again, recent archaeological discovery on the banks of the Thames, a rapier and dagger. And this is, of course, demonstrated the kind of person that goes out on the town in Southwark. If you're a gentleman, you're allowed to carry a sword. That means that if you're a gentleman, you're almost obliged to carry a sword. You carry a rapier and a dagger together. They're the great fencing weapons. Not battle weapons, fencing weapons. And you use them together as the last act of Hamlet, um, where rapier and dagger is what Osric says is the weapon. Not one, not two weapons, one. And we know that when you set off for the Globe for the night, if you were a young man, you took this with you. And this is a huge problem for Elizabethan London. Knife crime among the upper classes is the real threat to civil order. And there are statutes passed against the length of your rapier. It's exactly like guns in America. The idea if you have a little rapier to be less damaging, you know, a small gun. Um, and you can break the rapier. There's a law saying that rapiers can be broken if they're over a certain length, but there's no police force. So you set off with both. And you're probably looking for a fight as well as prepared for one. Very expensive. and. They must have been dropped from the boat. You could only get to the, the Southwark by going over London Bridge, there's only one bridge, or a boat. It was only dropped by a drunk young man uh, getting out of the boat, or thrown away because he's in a brawl and in trouble with the police, and left on the foreshore till they discovered um, about 20 years ago. This, of course, is critical to think about Romeo and Juliet. The idea of calling a young man about town a, a young blade is first used in Romeo and Juliet. And that's because Romeo and Juliet is not so much a play about young love, but actually a play about knife crime. And Mercutio, remember, uh, Romeo tries to stop them fighting, saying the Duke has forbidden this. But they go on fighting exactly as in London. 
and the tensions, the civil disorder that come out of that. Everybody in the play, in the playhouse, would have known that. They'd probably have seen brawls on the way to or the way from the theatre, and it gives a very special edge to what's going on um, uh, as you're in the play, in the theatre, watching it. And you also love watching people fighting. When the theatres don't have plays on, they put on sword fights as well that you pay to go and see. So when you look at something like The Last Act of Hamlet, um, you're actually getting two for the price of one. A sword fight between people who will be able to fight very well, which you pay for anyway, and Shakespeare's play thrown in. That was Neil McGregor talking about Shakespeare's audience in the Globe. Neil's book, Shakespeare's Restless World, is out now. Next, Claire Balding chatted with us back in May about her autobiography, My Animals and Other Family. Hello, I'm Roy McMillan, the audiobooks producer. And when Claire Balding came into the studios at 80 Strand to record her autobiography, My Animals and Other Family, I took the opportunity to talk to her about her childhood memories and the reason she decided to write an autobiography. And it turns out she didn't write an autobiography. Well, she did, but that's not what it's called. First of all, I wouldn't consider this an autobiography. I think it's a memoir and I think it's a really important distinction because to me there are times when it takes off into a dramatic world that is still based on truth, but obviously is is not fictionalised, but certainly enhanced um, for the purposes of telling a good story. So I, I don't think of it as an autobiography and I wouldn't be ready to write an autobiography. I, I'm not sure I'd ever want to particularly, but I did want to tell stories about my childhood because I think it was a a pretty extraordinary time and um, I hope that there's enough that people connect with um, that makes them feel they shared similar experiences albeit in a very different setting. Having as it were experimented with narrative and writing this you've written lots of stuff uh, you, you graduated with in, in English wanting to be a writer are there more books on the way as a result of having sat down and got this one done? I hope so yeah I mean there, there's definitely there's a there'll be another book that I'll write um, the beginning of 2013, which I'm not quite sure yet what the subject matter will be, but I think it'll be more, um, not a, well, it'll be factual rather than, you know, rather than memoir or indeed fiction. But but one day I'd love to write fiction, yeah. The story of the title, uh, most people will know, of course, the Gerald Durrell book, My Family and Other Animals. What gave you the opportunity to, to use that? How did it come about? You mentioned in the book that, that Lee Darrell gave you permission. Yeah, a few years ago I went to Jersey to do a job, um, to go to the Jersey race course actually, but to do a job to help them promote their racing. And the guy who'd invited me knew Lee Durrell and he was a trustee of, of the um, Conservation Centre, as they call it now. And he said, oh, do you want to come? And I thought, that fantastic. And luckily Lee Durrell was there. So we sat in, the, in their drawing room where Gerald Durrell wrote his books and drank very strong coffee. And I said, oh, look, I, you know, I've got this idea. Would you ever mind if I used the title My Animals and Other Family? And she said, oh, no, that's fine. So I wrote to her then when I did the first three chapters for this, I sent her the first three chapters and said, look, can I just confirm with you that you're happy? And this is an idea of what the book will look like, just so you know. And, um, and she came back I remember she rang me during Wimbledon because I remember being in the green room at down in the sort of basement of Five Live at Wimbledon, getting the phone call and being really nervous that she might have changed her mind. And I was very worried because I thought, how am I going to explain this now to Penguin? <laughs> I can't use the title I've told them I want. Uh, luckily, she said, no, that's fine. Having gone through your family's history as well as your personal history, has it changed the way you view 
that part of your life or changed any of the relationships with your family? Well, it's difficult to say whether it's changed the relationships with my family because I'm not sure. Well, they haven't read it yet. My mother has read it, but my father hasn't and my brother hasn't. Um, I think in a funny way, I think it's made me appreciate the comedy of grandma and that allows me to get over the fact that we didn't really get along. Um, and, And that's been... It was really fun writing her voice. And even there are things that she didn't actually say, but she would have said them and exactly how she would have said them, too. So I think that that has brought me closer to her. It sounds odd given, you know, she's not here anymore, but it's certainly brought me closer to the memory of her. And I think also writing about my mother and the amount that she did for us makes me, you know, realise that actually, you know, she had it pretty hard. and And I think it's... I think it's harder for her to read it than for anyone else. I, mean, I don't know because they haven't yet, but when they do, <laughs> I think it is harder for her because I think it's there's a lot that's very that I may have seen and put into print that even she wouldn't admit. Um, the loneliness of her early married life, for example, and that's you know that's interesting when you're writing that about your own mother that it's not a character you're making up, but you are laying on things that you think you know. I also wonder whether whether the process of creating this this work. Contextualizing it, I suppose, um, has changed perhaps some of the attitudes that you have towards them. You say you, you, you've seen your mother in a different light. Now, you, your father is a, almost a comic yeah. villain, <laughs> yes. uh, but at the same time, I was, be, became aware that actually he he did in fact give you more of a chance than you might have expected him to. Oh, d- he, oh, and, definitely. And did give you the opportunity to ride, to to compete, and recognise clearly that there was a the talent there that you wouldn't have thought from the way he'd been portrayed. He would have. He would have seen. No, it. absolutely, and I think that that is. He really did give me a chance, and and it's because of him that I was able to win the championship. No doubt about it. And and that he became very competitive on my behalf. And he still, you know, now he'll never say to me direct, "Oh, I, you know, you did very well." But he will defend me to other people, or or indeed, you know, loves it when other people come up and say nice things, and and says to me, "Oh, so and so said something terribly nice," you know, which is his way of saying, "And I thought so too." Um, but you know, no, we have a. We have a very funny... I mean, I'm quite hard on him in the book and I think I'm quite hard on him in real life, much tougher than anyone else is with him because I see him sitting there not putting things in the dishwasher still. That really gets you. Oh, (laughs) God, it just annoys me, you know, because it's not a difficult thing to do, but he just thinks it's not his job. And I slightly think, well, you're retired now. You know, why is it mum's job? (laughs) I get very cross on her behalf, but he's just blissfully unaware and I know he'll read this. And any anything anyone else might read and go, ooh, that doesn't sound. He'll just he'll just laugh because that's him, you know. Yeah, of course he said that, and still thinks it. You know, it's all it's all, yes. It's I mean none of that's untrue, and and I think um, <laughs> the idea that it might shine a light at him and and help him become a new man is is so fanciful. I wish, but I don't think it's going to happen. Unreconstructed, yeah, 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 in that case. Exactly. So having gone through the process, then of, you know you researched it, you created the space to write it, what have you. You've now read it both to yourself and to everybody else what was that like yeah very strange I mean there are bits where I thought oh no this is you know maybe this isn't very good and then there were chapters that I genuinely don't remember writing and I know there were times and I think the chapter about the outward bound is is a good example there were times when I just went into a, um, a sort of a zone that I was writing a lot I mean a lot of words were coming out in a day I'm sort of you know well over 2,000 words a day sometimes 3,000 4,000 now that's a lot to write in a day um when some days you you struggle to write 500 you know and and it was just flowing and I, I that, that when I read that back I, I sort of just, you know it's like reading essays when you're at school and you think 
Did I really write that? And so, I, you know, some of it I think, gosh, that, I'm really proud of that. And other bits I think, oh, God, you know, how embarrassing I'm going to get, you know. And, and obviously I don't come out of it terribly well, but I think that's rather important. I am, you know, I'm most often the cause of the problems or the butt of the joke or I let my mouth run away with me or indeed I st- steal. <laughs> But I was thinking also that when you write, it has to be sporadic. Up to a, you know, you have to set aside time, and it's it's a long, long process. Quite apart from learning, and here it's quite a compressed one, where the whole story is told in very in, in very little time. Yeah. Did that change your view of the story? The fact that you were reading the whole thing through like a like a new reader. Um, it made me more aware of of linking back, and actually, if I did the same thing again, I'd probably be braver in linking back more. So when you get to sort of chapter 10 or 12, that actually you can reference things in chapter one or two and planting things early. And I remember going back because of the scene um, to, in the last chapter where my mother comes to Chepstow and she whistles at me and, and I do that. I, I realised I hadn't mentioned it before and she did that to us all the time and still does. So I planted it in an earlier chapter. And actually, if I, you know, the planning of it, I, I kind of knew, you know, I'd written a chapter plan and I sort of knew how each story would finish because it was my life so clearly I I knew what was happening but yes I think there are some assumptions that I if I wrote again a different sort of book I would make it clearer make the links clearer and you've effectively given a a paragraph on your life from 1990 from 1990 to the to the present day now was that a a deliberate decision because there's that that is a story yet to be told given that it does cover the the fact that you became a presenter on the uh, for the the bbc then a television presenter presenter of other programs and became very high profile for any number of reasons including your personal life is that a story you want to tell later or did you just say no i don't want to touch that at all and that's why i'm just um I don't know whether I want to tell it later. I don't know. And and, and in some ways, it slightly depends how this goes, because I think there was enough. There's enough that is sort of fun and gently controversial without being hugely controversial um, in my early life that, that you can kind of test the water in a way and say, well, is there an audience for this before you write the... You know, the one that that may be more headline grabbing. I don't know. I don't know. And and if I do ever write it, it wouldn't be for a while. That was a lovely Claire Boarding talking with our audiobooks producer Roy. My Animals and Other Family is out now and will be re-released as a paperback in April next year. Finally, Dawn French and a cast of actors read an extract from Oh Dear Sylvia. A dervish is whirling around Sylvia's bed, gabbling and gesticulating wildly. Her explosion of curly grey hair bobs about busily as she moves. The too many strands of assorted, expensive but meant to look casual beads dance on her bosom and the clack of her posh but meant to look like working boots resounds off the sparkly clean, polished all the way under the bed, twice a day, check it on the timesheet, no bugs here, mate, floor. This is Joe. Sylvia's elder sister. Her mouth has mistaken itself for a machine gun. It just bothers me, darling, that when you do eventually wake up, I'm not even going to be able to tell you what happened because nobody seems to bloody know. You are probably the only one. Will you ever remember? God knows. Well... 
Well, obviously, God knows whichsoever God one chooses to align oneself with. Of course, I can't remember now if you even believe in God, do you? Oh, God, that's awful. No, I don't think you do. I think you're 100% not quite sure, aren't you? I remember you once saying you thought Jesus wore a blindfold to decide who would get the poorly babies and how that was terribly unfair, but you were 11. So you may well have updated your thinking since then. I know you like Christmas and weddings and church and stuff, but does that necessarily make you a Christian? It's probably got more to do with fabrics and lights and catering, if I know you. Do I know you? Well, that's the big question, darling, because I can see all this... this hellish situation. There's going to be some major decisions I will probably have to make on your behalf. Oh, God, why did this happen? What the hell were you doing out on your balcony? In the freezing cold? On your own? Have you started smoking again? Oh, darling, look at you. Joe leans over Sylvia's bed, smooths her cheek and runs her fingers through her little sister's hair. Desperately need your roots doing, darling. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, what's happened? Where are you, sissy? Come on. Come on. Wake up, sweetheart. Wake up and see me. I'm here, darling. I'm here for you. Always here for you. Big sister to look after you, just as it should be. Big one looks after the little one. I promised mummy I would, and I will. Come on now, try. Try and wake up. The doctor says you're a long way away, but you're just asleep, aren't you? Very deeply asleep, that's all. Wake up one day, won't you? Yes, yes, you will. Might be tonight, or tomorrow, or soon, anyway. Banged her head, you silly girl, didn't you? Banged it when you fell. Does it hurt? I cleaned it up pretty well. Shaved you a bit there, darling, where it's sore. But not a problem, that'll grow back in no time. You've got lovely thick hair. And straight. Always wanted yours rather than mine. Mine's a mess. Yours is sleek, shiny. How hair is supposed to be. Not like this. Mattress has exploded on my head, you said. Everybody loves yours. Loves the colour. Oh, come on now. You're just being a silly girl, pretending to be asleep like this. Snoozing. Well, we're all awake out here. You lazy bones. Idle. Selfish. Selfish, selfish. <laughs> Idle, bridle. Lazy, mazy. <laughs> That's you, isn't it? Joe acknowledges the catch in her voice, and for the first time alone in the clean, clean room with her still, still sister, she submits to the tears that have been brimming since she heard the news two days ago. She doesn't want to cry. She knows that if Sylvia is at all aware, she won't appreciate this pathetic show. She'd certainly tell her to butch up and get a grip, as she has done many times before. Joe can't stop it, though. It's the shock. This sort of thing doesn't happen to anyone she knows, ever. When she first heard the news, she felt as if she was suddenly a character in an American medical show. House was calling her to say that her sister had fallen three floors and sustained a serious head injury. Thank you, Hugh Laurie, for giving me this terrible news in your inimitable, forthright, some might say even cruel style. 
Thank God it's you, because now, of course, I know it will be all right, for the simple reason that you will inevitably, triumphantly and last-minutedly restore my stone of a sister to full health. Sissy might even seduce him on waking, with her unique interestingness, and win him over to become Mrs Hugh House. Hmm. That first shock of the phone call was awful. But this shock today, Joe thinks, the shock of actually seeing her lying there, so motionless, save for the hypnotic effort of the enforced breathing, is much, much worse. No two ways about it. Sylvia is nearly dead. Look at her. Her skin never usually looks pallid like this. She must not die. After all, Joe promised their mother always to have a care for her. Sylvia shall not die before Joe. Otherwise, Joe is even more of a bloody failure, if that's possible. Hold on, sweetheart. Come on. Keep living. We all love you. Well, I do. You know I do. We've had our moments, sis, but the loving you part has never been in question. You always love your little sister, don't you? Yes, you do. You have to. That's what you do. You just love them, whatever they're like, whatever they've done. However thoughtless or insensitive they might sometimes have been, however much they might have hurt you sometimes, carelessly, admittedly, but often purposely, you just keep right on loving them. Whatever you feel, you try to put their feelings first. They come first. Think of others before yourself. Always. Self comes last. Sylvia must be protected. So that's what we're going to do. Keep you going, sweetheart, at all costs. I'm not giving up on you. There'll be something that wakes you up. I've just got to find it, darling, that's all. I'm going to try anything and everything. You wait and see. And one day I will find it and you open those beautiful grey-blue eyes and I'll be the first thing you see. And you'll know how much I cared and how much I tried and you'll be grateful and maybe a tiny bit less unkind. <laughs> I might well catch you looking at me often in the future, just knowingly, out of the corner of your eyes, and I will know you're thinking, yep, <laughs> yep, there she is, my sister Jo, who saved my life, who didn't give up on me, who kept her promise, who is, truth be told, a bit extraordinary, and to whom I owe, well, everything, really. Joe picks up Sylvia's heavy, dead weight of a hand, noticing the red smudged fingers, and lifts it to her lips and kisses it very much. If you want to hear the rest of Oh Dear Sylvia, the audiobook is available now as a digital download or a CD. And that's the end of this instalment of the Christmas Penguin podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. The second part of our Christmas podcast will be out on the 24th of December. So put it in your diaries and keep an eye out for it on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit the website at penguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at penguinpodcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.